Well, today, as you know, our pastor is right now preaching in Newtown, Newtown Bible Church in Connecticut. And so I've got the awesome privilege to continue in our current study in the book of Luke. Today we'll be looking at Luke chapter 22 from verses 1 through 6. Turn with me and let us read. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money. So he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. Well, last week, if you remember, after witnessing the beauty of Herod's temple and its ongoing renovation project, which is going to span a number of years, in fact, decades, Jesus would go on to tell the crowd as they looked at this temple, this great temple, about its destruction. Now listening in the crowds were all sorts of people, including the religious leaders of the day who took issue with what Jesus was saying. Now it should remind us very much about the ministry of Jeremiah that we are, that is ongoing as we continue through our exhortation. There we see that Jeremiah warned the people about the impending destruction of the kingdom of Judah. But they never heeded Jeremiah's call. If you remember, some of them thought simply because they had the temple in their midst that nothing could go wrong with them. No harm could come to them. In fact, a lot of them, because of the temple was in their midst, they believed that somehow it afforded divine protection. They would swear by the temple, the temple, the temple, if you remember. But of course they were dead wrong. The religious leaders turned their anger and rage towards Jeremiah, who they felt preached a very contrary and demoralizing message, so much so that they made attempts to get rid of him. And it's the same similar story that we find here. Jesus is just warned about the people about this beautiful temple and how it was going to be reduced to rubble by an, by an invading army. Now Jesus was simply warning the crowd how to prepare for that eventual day. Now of course the Jewish leaders are in the crowd and they've been opposing Jesus from the very beginning since the beginning of his ministry. And this must have infuriated them because all hope was in the temple. And of course, this led to the urgency of getting rid of him. I say again because at this point, this isn't new, right? If you recall, as we've been going through Luke, there's been many of threats on Jesus's life. In fact, way back in chapter 11, and this is just mind boggling, 
Jesus performs one of the world's greatest miracles. There he raised his friend Lazarus from the grave. And what do you think the response of the Jewish authorities were that day? Well, if you remember clearly, they got together, they formed a council, and decided whether this performance was legit. And of course, they decided it wasn't, and Jesus had to die. Can you imagine that? Your best friend is dead and in the grave, and Jesus comes, and he awakens your dead friend. You stand there in astonishment. You clasp your face. People are saying, oh, my God, he is sovereign. He does reign. People are praising him, and yet the authorities instead say, nah, he did it on the wrong day. He's got to die. Astonishing. Well, fast forward to this 22nd chapter right here. And the opening verses of today simply tells us, just as a calendar reference, that the Passover was near. Look at verse 1. Now the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. And of course, being that the Passover was approaching, the Jews would have been about making all sorts of preparation for this great feast, commemorating that dreadful night when all of Israel was saved, but the firstborn of all the Egyptians all died because they failed to put the blood of the lamb on their doorpost of their home. But of course, this isn't the main story here. It's not about the Passover. Instead, I want you to see the the main story is about the conspiracy of the Jewish authority and their murderous intent, which finally comes to play. So while everyone else is making preparation for this great feast for what God did generations ago, for his people, Israel, the Jewish authorities were about planning a murder. Nothing could be diametrically opposed. You are the Jewish authority. You are the priest. You are the religious elders. And instead of commemorating the Passover, here you are plotting the murder of an individual. Look at verse 2. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death. Here we have the cast of conspiring characters in this drama. It includes the chief priests, the scribes, the temple officers, Judas, and Satan. All of these had their reasons to see Jesus dead. The chief priests and the scribes are working together. They're a group. Now, the chief priests aren't the high priests, but instead they're members of the most prominent priestly families. Now, they wanted Jesus dead because, as you recall, many times Jesus spoke directly against them. They were the subject of his many parables, and they were the warnings of his teachings. And Jesus, it turns out, was a threat to their abusive authority and their lavish and corrupt lifestyle. The scribes in the Old Testament are often counselors to the king in the matter of the state, 
We read about this when John informed us about Baruch. Now, after the exile, scribes become experts in the law of Moses. And by New Testament time, the scribes are associated with the Pharisees as professional teachers of the laws. And of course, they were responsible for keeping people in bondage by their often burdensome rules and regulations. And Jesus had interactions with them that would be the basis for them wanting to see him dead. In one particular story, they accused Jesus of blasphemy, a sin worthy of death. And of course, what had happened there that would be so blasphemous? But if you remember, Jesus had told this paralytic man, your sins are forgiven. Of course, they took problem with that. Of course, they rightly understood with this proclamation, Jesus was equating himself to God. They knew no man could simply say and pronounce your sins are forgiven, but only God. Now, of course, Jesus, knowing their thought, he asked this simple question. Now, it is easier to say that your sins are forgiven or to tell this paralytic man who's been, who hasn't walked his whole life to get up and take a mat and go home. Well, at the sign of the man obeying Jesus and getting up and taking his mat and going home, the crowd broke out in chair, just glorifying God for what they amazingly saw that was just done. But of course, what was missing in that story is the mention of the scribes acknowledging Jesus' work as divine and also glorifying him. But instead, here they are in our story right now. We can only assume that because they conspired against Jesus to still kill him, they still considered him a blasphemer and not the son of God. And then there's still others. Look at Luke chapter, uh, Luke verse 3 and 4. And Satan entered into Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. I'm going to work backwards on this one. We see that the officers are temple guards who basically served as security and enforcers. Whether they held any theological positions, I'm not sure. I think they were just following orders. But the fact is they also took place in the conspiracy, leading up to the arrest of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane when he was praying. And they brought an outrageous charge against him. And then, of course, is Judas. He's called Iscariot. Judas is one of the 12 disciples and the most notable because of his notorious act of betrayal. Now much has been written about Judas's motives for betraying Jesus as one of Jesus's close disciples. It's hard to imagine that Judas wanted Jesus dead because how he harshly spoke against the Jewish authorities or that he took issue with Jesus' theology. Maybe he thought this guy is a Calvinist, the way he preaches about God's sovereignty, and for that reason he's too dangerous and he's got to die. 
Well, that's not told to us, right? <laughs> of course, a simple look at the biblical text revealed that Judas was a common thief and his interest was purely self-motivated. He's the type of guy, if given the opportunity, he would gladly sell out his mom for a couple of bucks. The Apostle John notes that as the group's treasurer, Judas regularly stole from the money box. Even his apparent concern for the poor at the anointing of Jesus was in fact self-serving. He thought it was better to take that oil and sell it off for a huge profit. So it was for gain that Judas betrayed Jesus to the chief priests. After agreeing to 30 pieces of silver, now Judas is just seeking the right occasion to betray Jesus, especially when there's no one around to see it. And of course, then there's Satan. Scripture describes him as a thief, a killer, a destroyer, an accuser, a tempter, a sifter, devourer an enemy of our souls. He amongst everyone in the entire universe has the most to gain at the murder of Jesus. His intent was probably to stop whatever redemptive plan God had in action. And this isn't the first time that he's tried. Since the creation of man, Satan has been at war trying to put an end to God's plan. If you've been here in Red Mills for a long time, you know we love Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, right? Because there we see, as God explains, the mention of the first gospel in the middle of man being cursed. Genesis 3, 15, uh, Genesis 3 verse 14, I'll take it from, and verse 15. The Lord said to the serpent, because you have done this, that is, fool Adam and Eve to take part of the forbidden fruit. Cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you'll go and eat, and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the heel and you shall bruise, you shall, uh, bruise him on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what we see here is part of the ongoing hostilities between Christ, who is the seed of the woman in that passage, and Satan, who is the seed of the serpent. And this hostility plays out in history even when Satan plots to destroy Jesus, if you remember that plot was exposed when Herod, upon hearing that the true king of the Jews was born, what did he do? Well, he ordered all the firstborn of Jewish, uh, who were Jewish males to be slaughtered. This was just another simple attempt by the serpent who was very good at his craft. So at play, amongst this diverse group of people, they all have their own motives, but all united to see Jesus dead. Of course, at the center of this is the chief priests and the scribes who devised this murderous plan because they felt their authority was threatened by Jesus. 
But of course, there was a problem. If we look back at verse 2, we see that the chief priests and the scribes were afraid of the people. So they did not dare take out any public retribution. And they were afraid of the people who held Jesus in high regards. Simply because of how he taught and how he, he teached. And he did it with such authority that was never seen before. But then not only that, his teaching would back up with all these incredible miracles that he performed. In a parallel verse in Mark chapter, uh, in the 14th chapter of Mark, we're told that the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to seize him by stealth and kill him. For they were saying, not during the festival, otherwise there might be a riot of the people. This isn't the first time that they sought to kill Jesus. They just couldn't find the right opportunity. That is, until Judah stepped on the scene. Of course, no other person in the history of mankind has become the quintessential cautionary tale like Judas. Part of the 12, he was amongst Jesus' closest disciples. He learned from the creator himself. He heard him deliver life-changing sermons. He witnessed his miraculous healing and astonishing answers and qu to questions about everyday life. And then he also witnessed the raising of the dead. But amazingly, Judas was unchanged by those things. Although he was in very close proximity to Jesus, he was not a believer. Apparently, he was still dead in his sins. Oh, there's a lesson there for us, right? Proximity does not equate salvation. So this makes it very hard to believe that amongst people who were closest to Jesus and witnessed his ministry firsthand, Right there in the thick of things, in the midst of Jesus, his closest students, there was an unbeliever. And of course, this would be the opportunity that the chief priests would take advantage of. But it's not just the chief priests. There's an evil mastermind at work, an entity who's been at this for a very long time. He's the serpent, Satan. In concert with the chief priests and the scribes, he finds a willing comrade in the person of Judas Iscariot. And of course, that name lives in infamy. Look at verse uh, 3 through 6. And Satan entered Judas, who was called Iscariot, belonging to the number of the twelve. And he went away and discussed with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. They were glad and agreed to give him money, so he consented and began seeking a good opportunity to betray him to them apart from the crowd. As Satan entered Judas, there's not much that happens. Coming under the power of a supernatural being, you would think that Judas would have exhibited some superhuman strength or that he would have been foaming at the mouth or that he would have tore off his clothes and go live in a cemetery. But none of that happens. The phrase Satan entered Judas 
sounds like the common case of a demon possession. But nothing. But I think what we see here that's being described is really more of a case of influence. Let me show you what I mean by that. In another parable, in another parallel account of John, in John chapter 13, the disciple John describes that during supper, before Jesus started washing feet, that the devil already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot to betray Jesus. He put it into his heart. This description is common of satanic activity and influence. If you remember before, Satan did the same thing in the garden when he incited Adam and Eve to doubt and betray God. And ever since then, he's been running the same playbook. And why not? It seems that it's very, very successful. And of course, he ran the same play on another disciple. Let me show you that. Do you remember the great rebuke? Right? This occurs when Jesus explained to his disciples that he must die. Peter, having none of it, took Jesus aside and rebuked him. Can't talk like that, master. I won't have that. But as recorded by Matthew and Mark's gospel, Jesus rebukes Peter saying, and all of us together, get behind me, Satan. Okay, you know it. (laughs) For you are not setting your mind on God's interests, but man's. Now, come on, let's, let's admit it. If we were Peter, this would have been very deflating to us. I'm a disciple. I'm a trusted apostle. Jesus said, upon my confession, the kingdom of God would be built. And now here I am being equated to Satan. What? Very, very deflating. Peter knows and loves Jesus as his savior. So what could possibly be going on here? Well, behind the scene is Satan influencing Peter's heart, specifically to get Christ to divert from God's redemptive plan for his people, which, by the way, includes Peter himself. He wanted to divert Jesus from his mission of atonement. It's no wonder Satan regularly employs this tactic. In all of our lives, that's why we need to continually be in the scriptures. This is true, especially when you consider the scriptures already proclaim that man's heart is desperately wicked. And with that, it is entirely without need for someone to help it in committing evil for its own selfish gain. Among the selfish gain was Judas' desire for more money. It wasn't enough that he had access to the group's fund, but like the human heart, which is untouched and unchanged by God, he could never have enough. 
A lifestyle of lying and stealing now would lead to murder. And that's fine with him. Isn't that how sin behaves in the life of people? It leaves you wanting more. It leaves you thirsty for the things that God calls sinful. And if it's not apprehended by the renewal of the heart and the mind, then we go on doing the same things, trying to convince ourselves one more time, and I'm telling you, I'm done. Never again. It doesn't work like that, folks. I tried it. <laughs> Save yourself some pain, right? <laughs> now, apparently this was also fine with the chief priests and the scribes. Of course, so long as they were not directly connected to this murderous act. Of course, that's just a technicality. They too are murderers. Again, we see in verse 4, as Judas goes to them, he speaks to them about this betrayal. And they're all but too glad to take advantage of Judas and the opportunity that he presents. And again, this is why they're glad. Because by subcontracting the job out to, to Judas, the chief priest and the scribe could keep their quote-unquote hands clean, upholding images as a holy men. Of course, not receiving the wrath of the crowd should anybody have found out. These guys are murderers. They are just as responsible. Outside, as Jesus said, they were like whitewashed tombs. But inside, they're full of dead, murderous men's bone. So in conclusion, here are some things that I want you to see and understand that's found in these six verses. First thing is the knowledge that all of this is part of God's sovereign plan. Yes. The plan and the scheme and betrayal to murder Jesus, the Son of God, was God's own work. Again, way back in Genesis 3.15, this was proclaimed that the seed of the woman would crush the head of the serpent while he himself would suffer a bruise a bruise of death. And this is what we're witnessing here, the war between both seed that's rapidly coming to a conclusion. But let me bring you to a text that directly says this. In Acts chapter 4, shortly after Peter and John were released from jail for preaching the resurrection of Jesus, this is what the church said and they proclaimed in prayer. Acts chapter 4, 28. For truly in this city, they were gathered together against your holy servant, Jesus, whom you anointed. Both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, listen to it, to do whatever your hand and your purpose predestined to occur. Did you hear that? All who conspired against Christ were acting in accordance to God's own sovereign plan. Even as all of these casts of characters conspired to kill Jesus, they were unaware 
that they were acting out in accordance to God's plan and that their very action would lead to the atonement of God's people. It's amazing. You just can't make this up. God is in total control. Second, everyone who acted against Jesus did so based on their own willing, selfish ambition and interest. But in God's wisdom, this is why God is to be glorified and praised. He used their sinful desires and intent to fulfill his own plan. In all this, God is not the author of evil. Not at all. God is not a man that he should lie. He is holy. He is righteous. He is sinless. But God is in control. And he can use the evil desires and intents of man as he sees fit. All of these people were liars, thieves, self-righteous, idolaters, and murderers. No one was innocent. In the case of Judas, he was never a believer. And Jesus was aware of this. Jesus said in the Gospel of John, speaking to his disciples, but there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe. And who it was that would betray him. Amazing. And yet Jesus still chose him as a disciple. Jesus knew from the beginning who would betray him. Nothing, absolutely nothing, caught Jesus by surprise. It was part of the plan. It has always been a part of the plan. Scripture tells us even before the earth was created, This was part of the plan. This is much like the description of the unrepentant in Romans chapter 1. They were given over to their lustful desires and ultimately God used their evil interests and plans to bring about good from evil. Now, you know, it's just like the story of Joseph, who was sold into slavery due to the evil interests of his brothers. And many years later, as he confronted them, right, as the head of Egypt, he didn't take vengeance. But Joseph, understanding God rightly and his sovereign plan, told his brothers, what you meant for evil God meant for good. Praise God. Isn't that the God we serve? What we meant for evil, God has meant for good. Thank goodness. Thank goodness. Because none of us would be right here if that wasn't the plan of God. So ultimately, Joseph being sold into slavery, saved Israel's family from certain death by starvation. This is what is meant by God, perfect illustration of God going ahead and preparing the way. Now for us, God has prepared the way of salvation and his eternal kingdom. And he made it possible through the atoning death of his son, which the scripture says was the lamb of God slain before the foundations of the world. Ultimately, 
what the evil spiritual forces and the world of fallen men meant for evil, God meant specifically for our good. We are the beneficiaries. Third, I want you to see that we're all responsible for the betrayal and murder of Jesus. Every one of us. We're all fallen people who are guilty of breaking every one of God's commandment. None of us are innocent. Scriptures proclaim the soul that sins shall die. For this reason, this is why Christ died on our behalf. He stepped in and took our place. He took the punishment we deserved. And because we've all sinned and fallen short of God's glorious standard, it necessitated Christ to endure the cross on our behalf. That's the gospel. Anything other than that is false. God didn't choose you or me because we were so good and outward outstanding citizens because we're U.S. citizens. God didn't say, I've got to have her. She, she looks so good and she looks so wonderfully pleasant and nice. My kingdom would benefit from having her or him. No, not at all. We're all dead in our sins. We all deserve death. But it is for our sake Jesus was nailed to the cross and every one of us are responsible for that. If you don't understand that, then you don't know the gospel. The last thing I want you to see is really the beauty of God's sovereignty. Now, some people can't stand the thought of a sovereign God orchestrating everything. They in error believed that God wouldn't allow such evil and suffering in the world if he was sovereign over everything. God is too good to see, you know, a war happening where people are butchered. God is too good to let, you know, a group of people mug someone else or murder someone else, as we see all across the headlines. I mean, if that happens and God exists, then he's an impotent God. But if you understand the scriptures rightly, what you know is that God is sovereign and that he uses all things. Even evil and suffering in this world, he's sovereign over. We should never forget. And here's what seals it for me. We should never forget that the most evil act perpetrated was the betrayal and murder of the only innocent and sinless man that ever walked the face of the earth. Jesus, the Lamb of God. And by his murder, it led to our salvation. And yes, that was the plan from the beginning. Jesus must die. That's it. For all of our sakes. So, don't also believe erroneously 
predetermining some to eternal punishment and others to eternal life make God unfair. This was one of the topics of our Sunday school uh, today. We should never forget that we were all on our way to eternal damnation. And you know what? That's fair. You want fairness? Well, you're going to eternal damnation. But don't ask for fairness. Plead, beg for grace. Because it's by God's grace that he decided to show to some mercy and to others he decided not to show mercy. That's his sovereign choice. God is the only one in the universe who has this choice. So I suggest that we simply submit to the word of God and let's praise him for joining us to Christ. And that was surely part of his sovereign plan. Yep, Jesus must must die was upon the mind of the triune God since the beginning. It was the only way to reconcile all of us to God. So if you're struggling with this biblical understanding, just consider this. If God is perfectly holy, if God is perfectly righteous, if he is all-knowing, and he's all-powerful, then we must assume, we have to believe, so are his plans and whatever he's he's predetermined to do. It is perfect. Now there's more that could be said on the sovereignty of God, but we lack the time, so let me just take you to Ephesians chapter 1, verse 11. Listen to this glorious um, statement that Paul makes. Ephesians 1, 11. Also, we have, we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to his purpose, who works all things after the counsel of his will. Not my will, not your will, his will. He works all things, and that even includes the evil intent of his creatures to which he brings about good. For this, may all the praise be given to our glorious God. Amen? Amen.